0: Good morning. Um, it's really, really good to be back in Savannah, um, to be back with you guys. Um, thank you for letting me go to visit with family and brethren for a little while um, in Minnesota. Um, one of the most encouraging things, uh, it's cool to see um, sites, like we went to South Dakota and saw some things, but really being with brethren and sharing in growth and faith and things of the Lord is the most most encouraging thing about going to Minnesota to visit um family and many, many brethren who have had a huge influence on me. Um, and one of my favorite things was going to see um, older sister in Christ, who's a widow um, who can't get out much anymore, and just not sure if uh, next year she'll still be around on this side of eternity. And so it was just really good to get to be there, get to see so many brethren. Um it was very encouraging, but it's really good to be back, really good to be back here with you all. Um, so we're going to be doing a continuation of the series on Galatians, and we're going to be in chapter three. And just a remind of what's going on in the letter. Um, it's going to be, I think, very apparent as we get into chapter three, uh, kind of the context of the problems Paul is addressing. But there are Jewish teachers, and in chapter five, seemingly, maybe implied that there was a Jewish teacher who was troubling the church, teaching them that even though they are Gentiles, have no cultural connection to the law of Moses or the Jewish people, there was either a person or a group of people who came from Jerusalem teaching Gentile churches that the only way to be saved, the only way to be justified, is they also must become circumcised, become Jewish people, keep the law of Moses as well. And this leads to Paul writing what I think is his most emotionally frantic and urgent letter by far. Um, The last chapter ended with Paul having to correct Peter, uh, having to correct Peter openly and very frankly, uh, with issues that are very similar, if not precisely the same as what the Galatian churches were having to be corrected on as well. I think this would help the Galatians, seeing that Peter An apostle with reputation, he needed to receive the same correction they're receiving, right? So if they're not better than Peter, then they need to listen the same way that Peter did, right? And so I think that would help maybe break down some prideful barriers. Paul bringing up that even Peter was susceptible to this, despite all the experience that he had with the Gentiles, even though he was living like a Gentile, not like a Jew. And so these were just very, very, very challenging issues that involved a lot of social pressure, a lot of anti-gospel ideas that related to holding on to worldly privileges, worldly comforts, worldly identities, in contradiction of what the cross stood for. Chapter 3, Paul's going to get into what is one of the more difficult chapters, because he's making an argument. And his argument is about faith and faith as it stands in contrast to the law of Moses. What I'm going to try to do is teach through this in a way that hopefully simplifies all of these concepts and makes them approachable and understandable for us all. Um, So we'll we'll see how it goes. But I want to start back out in chapter 2, verse 19, and read through chapter 3, verse 5. And so this chapter really ends up dealing with gospel-centered faith what is faith, what is the importance of faith, what is the, ro- the role of faith. This is what this chapter ends up expounding on, and it's really the center of the argument that he ends up making. Um, we're reading chapter 2 verse 19 because I think in the writing Paul is segueing the final remarks he made to Peter in the past, and he's using those final remarks to segue into his argument for faith in chapter 3. So chapter 2 verse 19, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So really in the beginning of the chapter here, Paul is dealing with the nature of our need. And that's what all of this ultimately centers around faith, the law, God's promises. All of this deals with the nature of our need in relation to God and how God fills those needs. That's really what ends up being the basis of this argument I want to ask this question, I'm going to try to use some illustrations to kind of simplify some things that are being said here, but can we be saved if all that we do is we're just told the right things to do? If we learn the right things, do the right things, can we be saved? Does that deal with all of the problems of the nature of our relationship with God? Is it all resolved and all fixed if we just do all the right things? And if your answer is yes, you're wrong. (laughs) And we'll see that through the chapter, right? But again, these, these principles relate to the issues here. And I think what Paul is getting to at the end of chapter two is the gospel deals with reality. The law does not deal with the reality of our needs. We don't just need to learn right things and find the right system of practices and get into the right culture and do righteous things. And ultimately what we do is we die. So verse 20, I would argue that any act of obedience that is done in faith is our doing is dying. So notice in verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, that is faith, that the goal isn't just do the right things, the reality is what Jesus' death on the cross demonstrated, we don't need to do right things, we need to die the right way. And so doing is dying. So Paul in his example says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Again, the gospel wasn't just something Paul did sometimes. Faith for Paul wasn't just a light switch like, you know, okay, now it's faith time. He turns the light switch on. Now it's me time. Faith turns off and wait. Okay, now I'm doing something for God now. It's faith time again, light switch on. It wasn't just something Paul did. It's, it's, holistic, right? It was Paul dying to himself and being crucified with Christ that Christ could live in him, which also implies it's not him who's living, it's Christ working and powerfully working through him. This gets to his initial question in verse 1. He asks a lot of questions in verse 5 or 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5, just a series of questions to get them to think and reflect. How did the Galatians see Jesus Christ publicly portrayed as crucified? these were Gentiles, and they're certainly far away from Jerusalem, how would they see Jesus portrayed as crucified? One option is through teaching. So Paul publicly taught them about Jesus' crucifixion. I think, again, it relates back to chapter 2, verse 20. Did they see Jesus crucified in Paul? Paul demonstrated to them, not just in his teaching, In his example, he modeled for them the reality of Jesus' death in his example. Certainly something that the false teachers were not doing in their example, right? So again, the gospel is not just a part of Paul's life. It encapsulates everything. The law did not deal with the reality of our condition, but the gospel deals with that reality. So a couple illustrations. These aren't like perfect one-to-one illustrations, Um, but I hope that it just kind of can touch on some principles of what we're reading here. So I want you to imagine a person is driving 80 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour road, like a residential area, um, at least in Minnesota, you can go to jail for that, like going that far over the speed limit. So what does the law do in that instance? Does the law give a police officer the ability to pardon that crime? Or does the law give a police officer reason to catch that person, convict that person, and punish that person? It's pretty obvious, right? Um, It's like what Paul said in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I've got the verse on my notes here, which I have to have on my computer for today. Um, Paul talks about those who want to be teachers of the law. And again, I'm thinking he either means Jews who aren't Christians or Jews who became Christians and just like in this context aren't thinking properly about the law, says they want to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners. So again, the law can't pardon a person, justify them, or release them from debt, but it certainly can convict you, and it certainly can condemn you, right? Well, and why do you think this person going 80 and a 30, let us let's say they go to court, and let's say they face a judge who actually pardons them completely from the crime. Did they do that because of the law? Or is it simply the authority that they had to do something apart from the law? Was it graciousness apart from the law? So what this person needed was not the law. They needed a really, really, really merciful judge, right? And you imagine how thankful they would be, and they'd probably tell people, like, look, you really need to hope you get this judge, because, wow, I thought I was a goner, and he just totally released me. Again, not a perfect one-to-one, but just the concept of law, the role of law, and the limits of law. It's not that the law is bad. It certainly is good, right? Right? if one uses it lawfully, right? And doesn't take it out of its context. Another illustration. I want you to imagine somebody has stage four cancer. And this is like the most hopeless kind of cancer. This means that it is spread far beyond its origin in your body. Usually this means that like if it's, if you have colon cancer, that it's like reached your brain, it's in your lungs, that it's just, it's spread throughout your body. That's, it's a pretty hopeless situation. So while you imagine this person has stage four cancer and they see a doctor, and the doctor says, all right, here's what I've got for you. I've got a perfect diet plan. You know, if you eat these foods, if, if you don't eat these other foods, you're going to be just pristine health. And then here's a fitness plan where if you do this workout routine, you do this amount of cardio, you'll be good. And, man, I'll even throw in a paid-for gym membership, and this is the best gym in town. It's got all the tools you need. Does that help that person at all? So, no, know, it doesn't deal at all with the nature of their need, it's good for a healthy person. Can make a healthy person healthier, but for this person with stage four cancer, this this doesn't deal at all with their need, right? So this is kind of what he's going to say in Galatians chapter three. In fact, if you look down in verse twelve, however, the law is not on the not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices practices them shall live by them. What he's saying is the law can justify people, just not you, <laughs> not you, and not me because. We don't keep the law perfectly. Like the reality is what the law says does not deal with the nature of our need, the depth of that need, how far that need goes. Only God through the gospel properly deals with that need. Now, what do you imagine somehow, incredibly, this person is miraculously, their cancer's gone, like stage four cancer, obliterated. So imagine they still have this diet plan but as soon as they begin thinking about it, after being healed, they realize, wait, I've got crippling muscle atrophy. And muscle atrophy is like your muscles are crippled, they're useless, they're degenerated. And so now even being healed of cancer, he still can't use it. It's still his diet plan, his fitness routine that would work maybe for a healthy person. It still doesn't work for him. And this, by the way, is the contrast between Romans 7 and Romans 8. Where in Romans 7, it talks about how sin is like this overtaking cancer and it's, it's crippling, even the very thing I, I want to do, I do not do. Then finally in Romans 8, through the gospel, through the spirit, we are able to serve God not of ourselves, not of our own ability, but through the help, the intercession, and the power of God. So again, yeah, just to get the, the thought going on this. And so I think that, again, gets to are you being perfected by the flesh or by the spirit? You know, this is about our needs and having those needs met by God, not just by doing correct things that doesn't fit with our humanity and the reality of who we are and why we need God. The rest of this chapter makes a contrast. And I'm going to try to simplify this by charting this out piece by piece. We're gonna see a contrast between between Abraham, the kind of person that Abraham was and what he represents for the sake of the argument here. We're gonna see the law of Moses in contrast to faith and ultimately all of this reflected in Jesus. And the law of Moses, we're gonna see that it's meant to point to Jesus, point to Abraham and his faith, um, but that the law itself was never intended to be a tool that could justify people. It just doesn't have that ability. Um, So we're going to start in verse 6, and I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter. And so I'll try to read uh, slowly, but we're going to just, again, piece things together, and I hope you'll be able to follow along. And again, I hope this simplifies the argument here. Verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And note this in verse 11, as we were saying, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet, when it has been ratified, and that is when it becomes, like, official, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but this statement is so critical, I think, and clear. So I've highlighted this statement. I would encourage you to mark it in some way for the sake of its importance For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed." Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, you, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Um, I think if we were Jews, like, you know, in the context of what Paul is writing about here, like religious, cultural, everything, I think verse 29 would really be a mic drop statement, right? Um, So let's kind of work from the beginning here. Verses 6 through 9, what's significant about Abraham in the context of, of the argument he's making he's a figure of faith simple as that so verse six is a quotation of genesis chapters 15 verse six one of the most significant verses on faith that the new testament references again and again and again when making an argument about the nature and importance of faith so abraham it wasn't just that a belief was a part of his life Look at verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Faith wasn't just a quality in Abraham's life. It's a part of who he was. And it's, it's, not, it's not as much in the context here about what he did, although Abraham did things out of this faith. For the sake of the argument, in the, in the context of Genesis 15, verse 6, it wasn't what he did. It was how he heard. It was how he heard and how he believed in God's promise. Again, getting back to some of the questions that Paul asks in verse two, did they receive the spirit by the works of the law or was it by how they heard and how they believed in God's promises? Think about baptism in this context, right? Baptism isn't some great act of obedience. It is hearing, believing, and the doing is dying. You know your arms. Most people, when they're baptized, their arms are usually even crossed and on their nose, right? So I mean, you're surrendering and allowing yourself to be put down into the water, buried with Jesus. And again, that's a context for our relationship with God. Our doing is dying. So ultimately, it's not foremost what we do, but how we hear and how we believe in God's promises. That's what made Abraham so significant. Well, this stands in contrast to deficiencies of the law. Not that the law is bad. Not that it's bad at all. The law is good. The law is righteous. The law is spiritual. But it's limited. In terms of can it justify you? Can it forgive you? Does it have the power to give life? Ne- like fundamental, fundamental needs we have in our relationship with God. Those are things that the law cannot do, right? So the first thing I want to emphasize is the first thing that is emphasized in Galatians 3 about the law. Verse 10. Fundamentally, does the law bring the blessing of Abraham? Does the law bring life and hope? No. As many, meaning all who are under the law, what does it bring to them? It brings a curse, ultimately death. So the law of Moses isn't what brings the blessing of Abraham. In fact, the law itself brings a curse, not a blessing. And then if you look at the very next verse, what is plainly said, the law can't justify. Maybe it could make you feel justified, like uh, I think was mentioned, um, I think Brandon, you mentioned the rich, rich young ruler. Um, it can make you feel justified, but not before God. The law cannot justify a person before God. And Paul says that's actually in the Old Testament meant to be extremely evident and clearly conveyed in this quotation from Habakkuk, chapter two, the righteous shall live not by the law, but by their faith in God. What God is able to do even apart from the law, the power that God has even apart from the law, the judgment that God brings even apart from the law. But again, the law on its own, it cannot justify. Um, It cannot pay the debt of our sin. It can't resolve the problem of our guilt. It cannot bring us into unity with God or reconcile a relationship with God. Then another interesting statement he makes, this this to me is a very captivating statement um, that he makes in verse 12. He says, the law is not faith. It's not of faith. So again, the law is not what itself connects you to God, his power, his forgiveness, reconciliation, He says, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, if you're going to practice them, you'll live by them. And it's kind of like a challenge. Like, can you even live by them? Well, well, no, it's redundant. It's like we're asking a rhetorical question. The answer is the law is powerless. So if you're trying to live by the law, it's impossible. You can't because that doesn't have the power to resurrect a dead person or to forgive somebody who is unfathomably indebted to a judge. And it was added because of transgression. Verse 19, just like what Paul said in First Timothy, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the unholy, the profane, the ungodly, the sinner. Verse 19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. And so it wasn't because of righteousness that the law came into being, but it was to diagnose sin more clearly. In Romans chapter three, Paul asks a very helpful question. If Jews are sinners like Gentiles, and if having the law actually didn't mean you were better than Gentiles, then what advantage has a Jew, has a Jew over a Gentile? And man, what's even the purpose of the law if, if Jews are condemned like Gentiles? But that, that is exactly the beauty of it. The law both convicts you of your sin while at the same time pointing you to God. The more convicted we are by sin in view of God, the more amazing his mercy becomes, the more clear his nature becomes, the more clear we are with our own reality and humanity that I cannot meet my own needs, the law cannot meet those needs. It isolates and exalts God. As he goes on in Romans 3, he says, Let God be found true, though every man be a liar as our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. So the advantage a Jew Jew had wasn't that the law made them better than others. It wasn't that it justified them or that they were superior. It was that they could be more convicted by their sins and understand better than anybody else the power of God to fill the void of their sins and pay the debt of their sins. But again, it was added because of transgressions. Uh, Verse 20, this is one of those like tongue twister statements. Now, mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. I think from verse 19 and 20, really what Paul is arguing is just like we talked about briefly in Exodus 19, the law does not unify people of God. The law accentuates, it amplifies how divided we are with God. If we know that a division exists, then what are we to do? Are you more likely to solve a problem if you don't even know that a problem exists? You know, I think about in marriage, like, your guys' marriages might be different than mine, but if I've caused tension in my relationship with Eva, and it's, like, really affecting her, it's really hard for me to concentrate on anything else. Like, if I'm trying to meet with someone else or do study my Bible, whatever, like, I can't properly concentrate until that tension is resolved. So, was the law good? in that it conveyed the tension that exists between you and God, bringing reality to the divide that exists and the need to resolve that divide and how that divide is resolved, that's a good thing. It doesn't justify you, but what it reveals leads you to faith and trusting in God to supply for needs that only he can fulfill. It cannot give or restore life. Again, verse 21. I I can't say enough how important I think this statement is in Galatians 3.21. I think if if other statements are confusing and kind of hard, like, is that really what it's saying? Or like, I don't quite grasp this. I think verse 21 is really, really clear and simple. Allah can't give life. What the gospel reveals is we're dead in our sins. We are hopeless, dead, defiled, The law cannot cleanse us properly from how defiled we are in our sins. The law cannot heal the wounds that sin has brought into our lives. It cannot resurrect our dead lives or restore us to God. It cannot give righteousness to unrighteous people. The law is good as a testimony, as a tool. But what it is as a tool, it cannot bring life to dead people. Um, I did have an illustration I wanted to use for that really quick before we talk about this holds in custody bondage. Um, I had a friend in Minnesota uh, when I would go to Rochester at times. There's a very famous hospital there. Um, I think it's one of two Mayo clinics. Are there two or three Mayo clinics in the America? Yeah, I think two or three, something like that. There's not very many. Um, one is in Minnesota, and this sister in Christ named Anna Bower was there for an extended period of time. Her organs were shutting down and they had to do all of these extreme things to like keep her alive. It was very hard for her to get out. She was so, so sick and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And eventually they took her to Florida to uh, one of the other Mayo clinics and they found out it was Lyme's disease. And when they found out it was Lyme's disease, guess what happened? They helped her, they cured her because all these other things that they were trying to do were actually making her worse. And this is, again, the beauty of the law. If we try to solve the problem of our sin, but it's not with God or by the method that God provides the gospel, it's ultimately just going to make the problem worse. But if we go to God, what the law testified to, God can resolve the problem, right? Kind of like the woman hemorrhaging of blood. As soon as she touched the garments, Jesus' garments, she was healed. The law shows us who can give life. 23 and 24, um, at the conclusion of Paul's argument, it makes the point again in this context of freedom and bondage the role of the law doesn't give you freedom the role of the law was to hold the jewish people in custody to kind of like forcefully keep them in place until the world was prepared for jesus and so again it's not that the jewish people were free they were enslaved and Man, it's like that, um, oh, I didn't write it down, but it's, it's the symptom where you fall in love with your capture and you think your slavery is actually a good thing, uh, Stockholm Syndrome. It's like Stockholm Syndrome, when a Jew thought they're free by the law and the law is the end goal. Man, that's the opposite of what God is saying. The law was not your freedom, it was your captivity, right? So the law brought people into bondage and by exalting the law as a Jew over the gospel, The Jews were in bondage, and for a Gentile to think they needed to keep the law, now they're in bondage. So let's talk about the role and sufficiency in Jesus. So on the chart here, I've tried to kind of point out in hopefully some clear ways some things that are said here in contrast to the law about righteousness and life. First one is verse 15 through uh, 18, and really verse 17 is the main one. Um, but in verse 15 and 16, what he's saying is, you know, God already made a promise to Abraham, and there were conditions that already existed with that. And verse 16, although it is a really powerful, like, Easter egg statement, when he says, you know, that was singular in Genesis 22, to your seed, Christ, when God promised to your seed, through your seed, he would bless the nations. The idea is that God's plan was always Jesus's life, death, and resurrection in blessing the world. It was never the law. The law was not the end goal. And that's not how the law, um, or that's not how things were worded to Abraham. It was always on the basis of promise. So verse 17, when the law came hundreds of years later, did that invalidate God's terms previously made? Did that invalidate or change all of a sudden how God said he would accomplish his blessing? No. So the way that I've tried to visualize this is apart from the law, kind of like outside of the law, there is eternal life, life from death, and righteousness or unity with God. Again, verse 21, those who were righteous within the law, people who were Jews, people like David, Samuel, the prophets, Daniel in Babylon, these men who are are righteous... They weren't accounted as righteous because of how well they kept the law, but because of ultimately their faith. And because of their faith, they were connected with Abraham's faith, with Jesus as the fulfillment of those promises. And so therefore they were righteous. Therefore they had life with God, unity with God, not because of the law, right? Um, Example of this, I think, is Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, when it's commending people for their faith, He doesn't commend anybody for an act of lawful obedience. It's all things that exceed the law, because what we'll see in just a moment is faith ultimately exceeds just fundamental lawful requirement, right? Um, Look at the end of uh, the chapter in verse 23 through 25. So one of the things that's important about Abraham was faith was not just a quality of who he was, it was who he is. Abraham was the believer. Now look at verse 23 through 25. And this is going to be um, what I put on the board as in Jesus is not just someone who had faith, but Jesus is the full embodiment of faith. Verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Notice then, before faith came, the faith which would later be revealed. Verse 24 now Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So verse 24 says, you know, faith was coming. It was going to later be revealed, this faith. Verse 24 says, or rather verse 25 says, but now that faith has come, what's in between verse 25, or sorry, 24 The law was the tutor to lead to Christ, that now we may be justified by faith. So again, it's not just that Jesus had faith as a part of who he was, as something that he had sometimes. Jesus is the living embodiment of all that faith is, the effect that faith is meant to have, the changing power of faith. And again, I think a helpful way to think about this, in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan tempted him when he was hungry to turn a stone into bread. Was Satan challenging Jesus' dedication to the law? Was there any law that forbid you from miraculously changing a stone into bread? There's no law that exists that would claim that. What was Satan tempting Jesus of? Not his dedication to the law, But his dedication to his trust in God, his faith in God, to make stones into bread, would not violate a commandment of law. It would violate the law of faith, and so Jesus fulfilled faith. Contrast this to Romans nine. This will be the only scripture we'll look at outside of Galatians here. But turn to Romans nine, and this is a verse I think I've brought up before when we talked about faith in the past, and maybe the obedience of faith, but Romans 9, 30 through 33, I think helps to make some contrasts here as well with this. Romans 9, 30 through 33. And this is dealing with the time period of Jesus was a very unique time period because there were Jews who were zealously trying to keep the law, zealously, but not by faith. And that was a very unique thing within Jesus' time frame that there was a huge amount of Jewish people who were again very zealous for the law very zealous but without faith Romans 9:30 What shall we say then that gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness even the righteousness which is by faith but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law why because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works they stumbled over the stumbling stone just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So this is a contrast um, that some of you have heard me make before. Without faith, what do the Jewish people have? The Pharisees, for instance, if if they strip the law of faith and they're not keeping it by their trust in God, in view of God, with God as their goal, if they're just trying to keep the law, what are we left with? You're left with a system that doesn't bless you. It curses you with something that can't justify you. It's not of faith. It's added because of transgression, not because it can help your dead condition or sinful condition. It exposes that you're divided with God, and so it doesn't reconcile you with God. can't restore life. It holds you in bondage. and So this, this is what the Jewish people are left with if you're trying to keep the law without faith is a system that cannot justify, cannot save, cannot pay the debt of sin, cannot work to help you in your crippled condition. It's powerless. In contrast to this, how well did Jesus understand and keep the law? Perfectly. So I want to think for a second. How well, let's say the Pharisees, people who I think, among the Jews who wanted to keep the law without faith, I would say, As weird as this sounds, the Pharisees by far did the best job of it. They did the best job of trying to keep the law as zealously and perfectly as possible, yet without faith. When they interacted with Jesus, when they interacted with Jesus, who is the living embodiment of faith and all that faith is, how well did they understand the law in relation to Jesus? What did Jesus expose about how well they understood the law did they I mean did they even fundamentally understand the law I would say no and by the way when they're exposed to Jesus who is again the embodiment of faith how well were they keeping the law you know Jesus would expose that by their traditions they had created they were contradicting and violating laws that had with them the death penalty so how well were they really keeping the law without faith Catastrophically, they were not because they were trying to keep the law without faith. Now, on the other hand, how well did Jesus keep the law? I would say that Jesus so perfectly kept the law, we don't even read that as the grand struggle of his life. It's almost like by faith, man, it's like second nature that he just kept the law. He never violated it. And so Jesus, by his faith, he kept the law perfectly. Here's another thing. How well did he understand the law? I would say he understood the law perfectly, unfathomably. At 12 years old, he was amazing, the religious teachers, with his questions and answers related to the law. Why? Why? Because his pursuit was based in faith. And if Jesus didn't struggle to keep the law, what was the struggle of his life? Faith, exceeding faith lawful requirement. The Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you're even angry with your brother, you say, good for nothing, you fool, you are guilty enough to go into fiery hell. That is not the law of Moses, it is the law of faith. Jesus fulfilled faith. Faith exceeds lawful requirement. So another aspect of this that I find very helpful when we've kind of charted it out a a bit here. I would argue that the Jews... And the Pharisees, their goal was their system. And what they thought they needed to do was keep the system by the system itself. That if we just have our right system, and if we just focus on keeping that system, then we'll be good. We've got to convert people to our system. We have the right system. We keep the system by the system. How well were they doing that? They didn't even understand the system because of that mentality. I would argue that Jesus understood the system of the law better than they did, but what was his goal, and how did he keep that system? His goal was faith, and he kept that system by faith. So the end of Romans 3, when he's talking about the law, and the law showing us that we're sinners, not justifying us, and how we're justified by Jesus, he kind of says, well, okay, are we, are we nullifying law? Are we saying like the law is bad? And he says, no, on the contrary, we establish the law. Because the law could only ever be kept or understood if, if it was pursued through faith and kept through faith. When faith is taken out of the equation, everything falls apart. And that's exactly what Paul corrected Peter on. If we act outside of our faith in the Lord, if we exalt Jewishness and the law apart from faith, it is a breakdown of everything that the gospel represents. There's some other helpful things to, I think, kind of work through in this. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. So Jesus kept the law perfectly, right? And so how is it that Jesus could suffer death to redeem us if he wasn't bound to death since he had never violated the law and the consequence of violation is death? Well, verse 10, there's this Easter egg law. Cursed is everyone who, or rather, um, verse 13, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so by those who had already made faith void and turned the law, which was meant to be a blessing, into a curse, if they've already made faith void, then what are these Jews going to do to Jesus, who is the embodiment of faith in God's blessing? They're going to kill him. And so Jesus then becomes a curse, not because of his own violation or sin, but because of being hung on a tree. So Jesus became a curse for us, but he's not bound by the curse of the law. And so he is qualified very uniquely to be risen from the dead and not by the law, but by his faith in God. And again, what I've put on there is a line through the middle, through the law, that if anybody had life within the law, it was always because of what Jesus would do in the gospel. Everything before the gospel was looking forward to it, and everything that has come after the gospel reflects back on it. Everything that God ever did was always to point to Jesus. Um, I've got a verse in Luke 24, 44, where Jesus says that everything was fulfilled in his death, which was written about him in the law of Moses. It was always to testify. Jesus and cultivate a faith that ultimately connects to Jesus. That wasn't just based on the works of the law, but based on what Jesus would do. So the goal then is not that the Jews needed to teach Gentiles to become Jews. The gospel is a relentlessly corrective message. It is a message of loss that we may gain things eternal. It is a loss of the physical to gain that which is spiritual. And so where Paul concludes, and this is where we get into next week, is ultimately all need to be redeemed by Jesus' death, impartially. That it's not that we need to become anything but adopted children of God, but that starts with being redeemed through his death. That all may be adopted by God and share in the glory of being joint heirs with Christ by his resurrection the identity that we, we are given through the gospel, it doesn't come through achievement, merit, preserving any advantage. It comes through Jesus and the work that he accomplished on the cross. And yet, faith surrenders. And that starts with believing in the message after hearing the good news that Jesus came into the world to pay the debt of our sins. And we surrender to that message through repentance and being baptized for the remission of our sins that we could live with Christ to live through him, by him, and for him to the glory of God in hope of the righteousness that will be attained through his resurrection. If there's any here who have heard that message and see this morning their need to submit to it, to obey it, we compel you to bring your needs forward while we stand and sing an invitation song.